Recently, my daughter and I have been watching Wartime Farm together. Have you seen it? It's a British series featuring three historians who spend a year running a farm in the English countryside just as it would have been during the height of World War II. As the country faced food rationing, materials shortage, massive evacuations from the cities, and the need, the urgent need, for extra crop growing, rural people had to learn to adapt very quickly. They plowed every scrap of land, even the roadside verges, to bolster their crops. They created new recipes to try to make the most of their limited meat and cheese rations. They relearned old handcrafts that were already being lost to industrialization in order to make their own goods because so much was in short supply. And then, when they had to clear cities because of the bombings, they learned to make straw bale houses or refurbish their own outbuildings to shelter refugees from the cities, to cover their makeshift beds with blankets made of flour sacks or even paper stuffed with feathers from the chickens they plucked for dinner. And then they opened community kitchens, too, to feed everyone. And of course, the show in a way romanticizes what was a harrowing and very hard time. But at the same time, it's also true that throughout the crisis, people were able to adapt with remarkable creativity. And it wasn't just in the United Kingdom, of course. People in the US grew victory gardens too. Women joined the workforce in numbers. And they found lots of creative little ways to make up for everyday things that were missing from their lives. From chocolate cake made with used coffee grounds. I know my family still made that one when I was growing up. To clothes, again, made from flour sacks to some things that seem almost silly in retrospect, I'm told that shaving legs started as a way to disguise the lack of pantyhose. Many of us grew up with these stories from our parents or our grandparents or maybe even lived through them ourselves. And those stories have been passed on. The story of that big crisis and how we all got through. What we did together. And all of this, of course, was facilitated by a collective sense of purpose. During wartime, governments spread pamphlets to encourage people to make the changes they needed and to teach them new skills. And the press and the radio and the cinema continually reminded everyone of the need to pull together to make sacrifices and to adapt. Creativity is one of humanity's greatest strengths, part of what has made us so successful as a species. In his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond writes that when a group of humans migrates into a new region, within two generations, someone has tried to eat every mushroom, plant, and animal in the area 
prepared in every single way their culture knows how to prepare food, just to see if it might turn out to be tasty. We are creatures of experimentation. And of course, a lot of those experiments were probably inedible. And a few of them were probably really poisonous. But the impulse to keep trying is part of what has allowed us to adapt and thrive in so many different environments across time. But again, the complement to that experimentation is always cooperation. If only a few individuals tried a food and found it delicious or poisonous, but told no one, the group as a whole still doesn't know. Our impulse to connect, to communicate, is as fundamental and instinctive as our clever experiments. Indeed, this may be part of the human impulse toward the arts, the craving to take what we experience, what we know, and make it tangible to others. We want to capture and reflect the things we see, the things we feel, even the things we imagine. And in doing so, we all come to a better understanding of our world, our place in it, and our possibilities. Creativity is both adaptation and communication, and it is survival. So look, it's no secret that the world is in turmoil right now. Many of us are keenly aware of the ongoing invasion in Ukraine, of the racist violence within our own borders, of the attacks upon fundamental liberties within our government. And meanwhile, it's still the middle of May, and it's going to be over 90 degrees today. And this is not going to be the first time that we set a record high this month. And of course, things like this keep happening. And every time I find myself walking around with that little knot in my stomach, even when the unseasonably hot weather is kind of nice, like in January, maybe you have that too sometimes, maybe even today. That little niggling uneasiness that knowing that this isn't just one particular peculiar day, it's a symptom of something big and something scary. I don't know how much you've been hearing about the current state of the climate crisis. I know until recently I wasn't hearing much. It hasn't been getting a lot of press and it's easy to miss if you're not going looking for it. So I'm gonna take a minute for the bad news. And I'm gonna tell you, okay, th this part is not fun. And this is actually why there's clay. No one's gonna ask to see this. <laughs> Though if you would like to share yours up by the candles at the end of the service, we'd love to. But I find for myself that sometimes it's easier to take the bad news when I have a little something to do with my hands. 
It was the late 80s, the late 1980s, when scientists started warning about how humans are changing the whole climate of the Earth by burning fossil fuels and releasing more and more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We've all spent decades already with that horrible reality lurking like a boogeyman in the back of our heads. But no one can say exactly when it was going to get bad or exactly how to know when someday became now. Even as we've slowly started to see more extreme weather events, hurricanes and fires, there's still been a sense of waiting. For many of us, the climate has felt important, of course, but never quite urgent. Friends, that is changing very fast. At the beginning of April, the UN's panel on climate change released a report stating that the warming of the Earth's atmosphere is affecting the climate faster than they predicted. It's not just storms and wildfires, though there's plenty of those. We're now seeing massive heat waves and droughts across much of the Northern Hemisphere. India and China, both among the largest food producers in the world, are already predicting critical crop failures this year. And France is saying it may be one of their worst wheat crops ever. The specter of widespread famine is looming, and if not this year, then soon. And meanwhile, the polar ice sheets are disappearing, with some scientists wondering whether we might see a blue ocean event, which means no polar ice at the, around the North Pole. For the first time in human existence, maybe by the end of August, and if not this year, then probably in the next couple. We're reaching tipping points with the potential to permanently disrupt the oceanic currents that help to moderate the Earth's climate. Humans have never lived on an Earth like this. We're not quite sure what it's going to be like. But the UN panel's report is clear. We must stop all new fossil fuel extraction projects and begin drastically reducing our carbon output, our carbon output within the next three years, or be facing potentially worldwide ecosystem collapse inside of 30 years. But of course, the US is still actively approving new oil and gas extraction projects even since this report came out, and we aren't the only ones. The world's carbon emissions are still accelerating, even now and no one is talking about it. Okay, Whew. breathe. <laughs> I'm sorry, honestly. I didn't want to come up today and say those words, but somebody's got to. And if you're suddenly considering slipping out the back to get coffee somewhere, I wouldn't blame you. Heck, I'm guessing some people saw it on the blurb and didn't come because it's so heavy. This was hard to write. 
I can't tell you the number of times in that last few paragraphs where I found myself looking distractedly at my phone instead of writing or getting some sidetracked by some small chore. Eventually, I ended up writing with my sketchbook by my right hand so that whenever it got too overwhelming, I could take a few minutes to draw happy little pirates until I could think clearly again. In some ways, I think I've been doing that for years, knowing that the climate change is happening, but avoiding looking straight at it too much because it's too much. Because it's too overwhelming and it felt like there was nothing really I could do. Maybe you know that feeling. Honestly, I think a lot of us do. And it is, in a lot of ways, too big to hold in mind we are just mammals. It's hard to even think in terms of whole planet problems. And when we do, it's difficult to stay healthy, to keep living and functioning day to day. Someone's still got to make dinner. Constant anxiety doesn't ultimately help anyone. But here we are. The problem is real, and we can't keep looking away, so how do we move forward and keep breathing? The first thing you need to know is that we can still adapt. It is not too late. If you haven't been following the climate news, again, you might be surprised how much good news there is. People have been working creatively on this problem for a long time now, exploring and experimenting as humans do. And we've learned a lot about ways to make clean energy, ways to reduce how much energy we consume. There are technological solutions. Clean energy is getting cheaper. Some of our things are getting more efficient. Many of the tools that we need to transition to a net zero carbon society already exist. And yes, technology isn't going to solve it completely. Getting there will also involve what climate activists call degrowth, learning to live and build our society in ways that don't require constant unnecessary consumption. And that won't be easy in a culture like ours, which has become accustomed to so much stuff. But here's the lesson from the war years, remember? We can learn to live with less stuff. We can do it startlingly fast when we have to. We've done it before. We can adapt far more dramatically and far more quickly than we usually imagine possible if we can only unite in pulling in the same direction. And there is, of course, the problem. What the war years had that we currently lack is a coherent message from the government on down that this is what we all have to do to survive that this is your patriotic duty. And that we have to do it now. 
The current climate crisis is not fundamentally a fault of creative adaptation. It's a political problem, a problem of entrenched power and greed that makes it hard to even, to even get the microphone to convey the urgency of the situation, much less to address it nimbly. If, it's, if creativity can be both adaptation and communication, then communication is where we desperately need that energy. It's clear by now, unfortunately, that the powers with B will not take, creative, will not take decisive action on their own. Folks, we need to get loud. And we need to get creative about getting loud. What would it look like if every time the looming worry about, about climate crosses our minds, somebody said something, even just a small something, even just a little post on social media to let everyone else know they're not alone in thinking about it. Or what if it was more? What if every time you started getting a little worried about that, you called your representative, dropped a postcard in the mail to the local newspaper, Small things, but if we were all doing them, it would build. Even just naming that this is something we're all thinking can make it feel less like a boogeyman and more like a problem to solve. And of course, I hope that some of us will take louder actions as well. I know I've been thinking about joining the Extinction Rebellion movement, a group that practices direct action to call attention to the climate crisis. I'll be honest, it's outside of my, attention, my, my comfort zone. I'm not the world's greatest activist, but I think it might be time to get uncomfortable. Or perhaps sometimes speech can look a little different. One thing to consider is where you keep your money. There's an article just recently out by Bill McKibben where he talks about how the money that everyone is keeping in big banks gets used to loan out to fund oil extraction process projects. There have been some recent attempts to try to quantify that effect, and he writes, if someone has a savings of $125,000 in the big banks, that cash generates as much carbon each year as the average American emits with their yearly driving, heating, flying, and cooking combined, just by having the money in the bank. There are some smaller banks that have committed to divesting from fossil fuels. And what a statement it might be if we all took a good look at where we're keeping that money and put it somewhere that it would not be used to keep funding the burning. Might send a message. And of course, it can be almost anything. Like I said, just saying the word. And of course, some of you are thinking it's not enough to speak. You have to live green, and yes, 100%. If you can shift to clean energy, if you can reduce your consumption, we need it. But sometimes I think the impulse towards personal purity in our lifestyles can be a distraction. The th systems that need to move are the big ones. The biggest thing we can do, really, 
is shift the conversation and make some noise. And then, of course, we need to take care of ourselves and one another. In the same breath that we can't keep looking away, we also need to kind of sometimes look away for a minute. <laughs> Find your comfort. Find the thing that reminds you of joy and hope if you find yourself sliding towards despair or wanting to push it all away. For me, that includes drawing and painting and singing. I love the creative things. Yours may look different. But there's something in the act of taking what is inside of us and making it tangible. It doesn't have to be skilled. It doesn't have to be happy. Sometimes when I feel like I'm too much in despair to create, when I look at a page and I think I can't do it, I can't draw happy pirates right now. There's no happy pirate energy in here. Sometimes you just have to close your eyes almost and see what the pencil does, see what the words that come out. Sometimes art made out of despair, for all that it's raw, can also be really real. It can be a way of reconnecting. As Shelley Lubin writes, it is said that the way through despair is love. Not someone loving us, although that may help but finding love within us. Creativity is a tremendous force for love. It is a love affair with the world that we manifest through abstract expression. Whether the work is ferociously angry or radiantly joyful, even if the expression seems to be of our most hating and hateful selves, creativity comes from a place of passion inside us that rekindles our connection to the world and to the process of engaging with it. It rekindles our connection to the world in the process of engaging with it. I hope that this can be a place where we come together and share in that journey. I hope this can be a place where we engage. Because the way through despair is love, and we can give that to one another. When we sing together, when we talk together, when we tell the story, tell the stories of the times that we have been resilient before, the times that we have adapted, tell the story of this moment that we're going through together. When we create together, then we also give one another hope, not just a feeling, but real possibility. May this be a place where we find hope, even when hope is hard to find. Come, let's sing a song.